You're listening to sermon audio from King's Cross Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information about King's Cross Church, you can visit us online at kingscrossraleigh.com. This morning's sermon text is Romans 12. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may discern what is good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. For by the grace given to me, I tell everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he should think. Instead, think sensibly, as God has distributed a measure of faith to each one. Now, as we have many parts in one body, and all the parts do not have the same function, in the same way, we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. According to the grace given to us, we have different gifts. If prophecy, use it according to the proportion of one's faith. If service, use it in service, if teaching, in teaching, if exhorting, in exhortation, giving with generosity, leading with diligence, showing mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be without hypocrisy, detest evil, cling to what is good, love one another deeply as brothers and sisters, outdo one another in showing honor. Do not lack diligence and zeal, but be fervent in the spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in affliction, be persistent in prayer. Share with the saints in their needs, pursue hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, instead associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Give careful thought to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath, because it is written, Vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in doing so, you will be heaping fiery coals on his head. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. This is God's word. Good morning. Good, good morning. I am Chad, one of the pastors here, and I'm so thankful to be here with you this morning. So thankful to be in God's word as we come to the, what is the last of a series of five sermons uh, we've titled A City on a Hill. And uh, where we've started to talk about uh, really beginning with where darkness, we find darkness in this world and why it's here. Why is there evil? Why are there so many things that we see day by day uh, in the world around us, in the news, in our life that are uh, evil and seem to be at least against what God desires for the world? And then we talked about God's conquest over evil in Christ. Uh, That the victory and death blow has already been accomplished in Christ on the cross. And what does that mean for us? We now stand in light of the accomplished work of Christ, yet still living in this world that we're surrounded by darkness. Um, You probably can't go through a day in which you don't see some measure of evil done against someone or experience even evil yourself. Um, And so what do we do with that? 
We're going to be in Romans chapter 12, as, as Azealia just read this morning. And if you don't have a Bible with you of your own, we encourage you, you can follow along. We've got a little bit of a, we, we do have technical difficulties this morning. We did a little bit of troubleshooting and found out that uh, one of the, the cables is actually the problem and it has completely shot out on us. So that's why I've got a pointer and I'll be illustrating the text here beside me. But, um, but the text will be up on the screen, but if you, if you don't have a Bible, we have one we'd love to put in your hand. It's a gift from us to you. But this morning, before we start, I want to pray for our time. I want to pray that the Spirit would be with us, and I want to pray that He would lead us as we open up His Word in Romans chapter 12 and hear from God as He speaks to us. If you would pray with me. Father, thank you so, morning, uh, thank you so much this morning for uh, the opportunity that we have uh, to come together like this with the body of Christ. And Lord, those who are seeking or exploring or, or, or um, just considering who you are and the truth of your word. God, I pray that you give us wisdom this morning, that your spirit would be evident in this room, in your text, in the word of God, and that it would change us. And as we leave here, we'd be changed to be more like Christ. And we ask all this in his name. Amen. So we move into a situation here in Romans chapter 12, and we've selected this, honestly, as we've moved through the messages. We've come to a, a place where two weeks ago we talked about the Spirit of God being in you and present in you and changing you to be more like Christ. And last week we spent a lot more focused time on how we walk as light in this world and how we live that out in the way that we live in this world. But now as we wrap up this series and we come to a culmination Really, we come to the point in which God is taking what was broken and lost in Eden and bringing that back together in the church. What I mean by that is when he first created and placed people on his holy mountain in Eden, it was supposed to be a family for him, a people who would grow and, and steward the world that he created and be in relationship with him. And that was broken and lost from the beginning. And now in the church, God is recreating and bringing back together his holy family. His holy family. Like, that, like he mentioned there in Matthew, and Christ even said, a city on the hill that cannot be hidden. That the life of his people, of God's people, would be so dramatically transformed that it would be conspicuous in the world around them. He said, a city on the hill cannot be hidden. It's just seen. I remember some time ago when I was uh, much younger riding through the desert of Nevada, and it was during the day, daytime. And if anyone ever been to Las Vegas uh, before, or maybe you've seen pictures from Vegas, or you've seen folks on the Strip, it seems to be this crazy, wild, and it is, and, and you're walking on the Strip. But when you drive by in the desert, at least when I was a kid and I remember this, it was nothing impressive. It's just this row of the strip was there, road buildings, it just out in the middle of the desert. But when that place is lit up, you're not going to miss it. And what, that's not even on a hill, it's in the middle of the desert. Christ says, you put a city on a hill, the world's going to notice. And so this morning, what we're going to look at in Romans chapter 12, is that God's holy family, because of the fact that he has established us on his mercy, that we live in view of his mercy, and in living in view of his mercy, we're laying down our life for him, we're serving the body, and we are conquering evil in this world with good. Conquering evil with good. 
God's holy family is now ascending back up his holy mountain to commune and live with him. And that city can't be hidden because the radical change of Christ in you is noticeable. It's noticeable. So what does Paul say here in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2? What are the points that he brings up that demonstrates why that change happens and what it looks like? Well, first and foremost, he tells us that as the people of God, we are now worshiping the God most high. We are now worshiping the God most high, specifically by laying down our life as a living sacrifice. Look at Romans chapter 12, verse 1. There as we look at verse 1. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Notice that Paul starts this very passage by saying, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God. He sets the foundation for what comes next. There's an author, a speaker, I don't know if you're familiar with him, by the name of Simon Sinek, uh, someone who came to popularity by a video that I remember going viral at one point, uh, criticizing or at least critiquing millennials in the workplace giving a critique for how they, they, they transition. Now millennials aren't the new ones. They're old like me. Uh, but, but, uh, but he did come to the forefront. And he was, he, he's, he's popular as well for describing something called What is Your Why or Find Your Why. He had a book called, uh, titled one of these, Finding Your Why. Uh, and in that book, he talks, about, he talks about his books. He talks about the reason behind finding your why. And he explains that it's easy for us to forget about why we're doing something. Uh, the purpose that drives us when things are going well enough to have a semblance of certainty. If we're on a road trip, for example, across the country, and our goal is to cover 150 miles a day, and we make 180, we can get wrapped up in the metrics that seem to spell success and forget about our destination entirely. It's only when there's roadblock or there's struggling or there's something not going right that you start thinking, why am I on the road in the first place? And that's what why means. It means before you get in the car, you actually have a sense of destination. What I'm suggesting here this morning is Paul is establishing the purpose and foundation and destination for the Christian life. Because as we go along, and even as a church and we live day by day, when things are good and going well, it may be easy to think, I'm, I'm a Christian, yeah, I'm great, I'm living with God, I'm, I'm following him, I'm doing my thing. But when the challenges come, when evil strikes, when the world is dark, when we're suffering, when ones we love are suffering, when we don't understand the answers of this world, we have to understand the foundation for why we live and who we are in Christ. And Paul says it's for the mercies in view of the mercies of God. Robert Mounts, who wrote a commentary on Romans, says that in this paragraph, the therefore in verse 1 refers back not simply to the previous argument about God's mercy in bringing salvation to Jew and Gentile, but to everything that Paul had been teaching from the beginning of the epistle. It marks the transition from theology of God's redemptive act in Christ Jesus to the ethical expectations that flow logically from that theological base. We come now to what is usually called the practical section of Romans. It's a practical look at Christian life that is lived in view of the mercies of God. His mercy is our foundation. His mercy is our catalyst. It's the chesed in the Old Testament of God. His steadfast love. Actually, in Exodus, when, when Moses asks God to 
demonstrate his mercy, his glories to him. God takes Moses and tucks him in a, in a cleft in a rock, a, a little corner of a mountain, and says, you can't see all of me, but I'll let you see a little bit because all of me would kill you. So he puts him there, covers him, and as the story goes, as he walks by, he announces himself and who he is. And this is how God chooses to announce himself. He says, the Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth. That's how he introduces himself. And so often we see memes or cartoons and caricatures of God being a really angry old dude who's just waiting for you to fall and mess up. But what I encourage you today is our entire Christian life is not based on a God who is angry, bitter, and grumpy and just hoping you fail, but rather one who is a loving father who's rooting for you, who wants to see you grow to be more like your older brother Jesus. And it's in his mercy that we celebrate and live. The mercy that Paul laid out in the first 11 chapters of Roman, that God most high, because of his great love, that creator God who stepped into the darkness and he crushed Satan's sin and death in Christ, and now he is calling all the nations back to him. And it's that very mercy that culminates at the last chapter of Romans 11, right before we start this, in the very last section where Paul breaks out in song. You ever been that excited and happy? You having a good day? You know, you ever seen, you, it's like, it's like when you, I'm cranking on Tom Petty with free falling, rolling the windows down because it's just amazing outside and it's beautiful. It's like the last few days where it's like 72 degrees outside and just right. You know, I want to find a golf course I can afford to play on and go for it. Just, just to be outside. That kind of feeling that Paul has coming off the chapters of Romans 11, into Romans 11, and he says this, Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments, how untraceable his ways. For who has known the mind of our Lord, or who has been his counselor? And who has ever given to God that he should be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And as soon as he wraps that up, he says, in view of those mercies, he has offered everything to us, and now he's asked us what Paul is urging. He's urging us to present everything we are back to him. He says, I urge you. I urge you. Did you know as a believer, sometimes you don't offer God all you have? Sometimes we hold back, sometimes we fail, sometimes we falter, we fall short. But Paul's wording here is he says, I urge you to do everything you can in every way. Be intentional about offering all of yourself to the God of abundant mercy. It's a singular focus mercy. We talked about someone who is pure in heart. They're not divided. They're looking only to the most high God and worshiping him. All of us. Paul encourages us is to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice, and he calls that true worship, where we lay down our life for him. And it's not just a living sacrifice. I'm not asking you to go up to the altar. That's the language being used here, to lay yourself down on an altar. But he's trying to give that kind of a sacrificial life symbolism for us. It reminds me in Romans 6, where Paul uses similar language, where he says to not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires, and do not offer any part of it 
to sin as weapons for unrighteousness, but as those who are alive from the dead, offer yourselves to God and all the parts of yourself to God as a weapons for righteousness. You are weapons for righteousness. When you come to talk about the battle between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of dark, and you consider that your life is a weapon for righteousness. And listen, I'm not asking you just to change certain checklist things about your day-to-day. It's not simply just singing the right type of music. It's not making sure you read the right books. It's not making sure you simply daily recite your prayers, that you're not that you're, you're prioritizing regular church attendance. It's not making sure you tithe the right amount. All of those things are good, and all of those things cultivate a place in your life for the Spirit to work, but all of those things are transactional. They're transactional. And what we see from God is He desires to know us and for us to know Him in a way that's relational. It's what Jesus says in John 17, that eternal life that he offers is to truly know God and for him to know you. Maybe you're familiar with somebody named Dwayne The Rock Johnson, one of the most popular men or actors or whatever you call him now in, in, uh, in the world. He has 334 million followers on Instagram, some 6,764 posts people are checking out. All those people know who he is. I would say very few of them know him. There is a difference between knowing about who God is and about knowing him. All of those things I mentioned earlier that are transactions can create environments like spending time in the Word, spending time in prayer, coming together into the body. But know that those checklist transactions don't guarantee a relationship. Rather, they put you in a place that you can hear from him. And it's obedience that cultivates that knowledge. It's similar, in a similar fashion, marriage will fail and lack intimacy if everything you do is just really about transaction versus relation. I don't know what's wrong with my wife. I mean, I, I bring her some flowers every Thursday. I make sure I have a date night on the calendar to take her out and buy her a dinner. I say I love you every morning. But if all those things have no relationship behind them, do you think my wife feels like we have a relationship? No, what God says is that lay yourself down, your life, in obedience to me. And in that, you will begin to know what is the good and pleasing and perfect will of God. And that's where God continues to transform you. He says we are laying our life down in obedience and as a living sacrifice, and we are being transformed. Verse 2, do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. It says not being conformed to this world, not squeezed into a mold that's shaped by the kingdom of darkness. That your life doesn't look more like the life of darkness in this world, but rather, as you are obedient to God, as you lay your life down to Him, that He transforms you from the inside, renewing and changing your mind so you see the world differently. And that you live in it differently. That God connects obedience to mind renewal, and He works through His Spirit that He promises will be in you. But what is 
worship. What is this worship and obedience that God's seeking from us? If we talk about living our life in view of the mercies of God, ultimately, what does it look like to live that way? How do we serve this merciful God who saved us? And Paul turns very quickly to say it's by serving others. By serving others. Look at verses 3 through 6. He points to two realities. The first one is this, that God gives bodies to the gift. I'm sorry, he gives gifts to the body. He gives the body of Christ gifts. For by the grace given to me, I tell everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he should think. Instead, think sensibly as God has distributed a measure of faith to each one. Now, as we have many parts in one body, all the parts do not have the same function. In the same way, we uh, who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. According to the grace given to us, we have different gifts. Paul's very clearly saying the body is given gifts and they're all important. Every member is important. He uses a body analogy when he's talking here and I think that's super important to recognize. It's important to recognize because he mentions that we are connected in such a way as to be of the same body, same person. He centers that all around Christ, that Christ and us as the body of Christ are attached together in that way. Now, I could live without my pinky. There's actually a lot of body parts you could live without. Fun story, you'll probably enjoy this, right? Maybe you'll cringe. I was out on a boat one day, pontoon boats. Okay, I'm not a light guy, all right? I'm on a boat. My kids are getting into the boat. They know where this is going. Okay, and, uh, and something, a float or something drops, and I'm like, I'm going to go grab it and help. I'm at the gate. I'm trying to help them. I, I dive in to go grab this float because it's floating away. I went in the water. My hand tried to stay on the boat. <laughs> and by my pinky, that was the only thing holding me in the boat. Have you, ever, have you ever had something happened and in an instant you thought, do I still have that limb? That's what it felt like. I jumped into the water and the little place where the gate opens, the little wedge in between, my little hand slipped right down in there. And my pinky on my knuckle, yeah, we'll show you later if you want to see it. It looks like that. It grabbed and it said, you're not going anywhere. I did. I did manage to go. I wasn't sure if this came with me. <laughs> did it feel good? No. Can I live without this pinky? I can. I can survive. Was it painful? If it had been removed, absolutely, absolutely. I think it's important to note that Paul uses body as an illustration because, listen, I already have a pinky, and if it got ripped out, I'd notice. I, I noticed. And, and, and when we don't have certain functions and gift in the church and God provides opportunities to supplement that in some way, he can accommodate for that. But those who are part of this body, this local church, God has equipped us as the body, and each of you here have a gift and a value to your health as a whole. No matter how small you think it is. And if we lost you, it would hurt. But every part is important. And he doesn't just say here that you're just simply, that you individually are members of a body. He instead says you're members of one another. We're connected. And that in the body of Christ, as we are connected together, God has saw, fit, saw fit to give you gifts. And your gifts are to build up the body for his glory. 
in the midst of a dark world. So as we are giving gifts, God's family gives according to the grace that they've received. We give as God's family according to the grace that we've been given. Look at 6 through 8. According to the grace given to us, we have different gifts. If prophecy, use it according to the proportion of one's faith. If service, use it in service. If teaching, in teaching. If exhorting, in exhortation. Giving with generosity. Leading with diligence. Show mercy with cheerfulness. As a member of the body of Christ, Paul here lists out some examples. Are these exhaustive? No. I believe there's so many more ways that you can be blessed and gifted. But he's just simply pointing to some examples that now as the grace of God has poured out in your life, and as God changes and gifts you, now take that and give to the body. This is not a gift for the individual. This is a gift for his church. And as a member, we have different gifts. We have different capacities. And just like my pinky, you're all important. And, and I would venture to say, too, as an illustration, because that's one that nearly got ripped out, you're much more important than my pinky. I could, get, I could lose that. Paul lists examples of gifts. He says prophecy as an example. Uh, in 1 Corinthians twelve twenty eight, where Paul listed the gifts in order of their importance, the prophet was second only to the apostle. Uh, and Fitzmaier, who's a commentator on this, says that uh, prophecy here is defined really as inspired Christian preaching. And says that it denotes not one who predicts the future necessarily, but one who speaks in God's name and probes the secrets of the heart. Um, so I don't expect you necessarily to come in here and tell me the future. And we have ways of walking through that and handling it if you so feel inspired. But I just want to clarify that prophecy does not necessarily mean that in this context. The second thing he mentions is service. It's actually where we originally get the English word deacon from. It's the idea in the Greek of, of serving the church. And some people are gifted specifically in that way. Um, he mentions teaching. It's primarily but not exclusively someone who is able to take God's word or to take moral instruction and to clearly articulate that and teach others. He mentions exhortation, encouraging the body, giving. Some people are just naturally giving generous people and God has equipped you to be able to do so. And leading, you're able to lead other people. Organize, direct, give vision. And then finally he says, in showing mercy. It's interesting that that's a, a gift, that someone has a capacity to be like God in such a way that they show mercy greater than most people. What I want to draw, I want to point to a couple things about that list, though, that's very important. We could spend some time drawing and pulling out each of those meanings and what's going on, but I think what's important about this list is these two points that I want to show you. First off, they're not connected to a title. Okay? None of them are connected to a title. In the body of Christ, every one of you have a gift. And it doesn't mean you have a title. It means that you have a capacity to give to the body in such a way that, as Ephesians says, a similar passage, that the gifts are given to prepare the saints for ministry, for building up the body of Christ, and that each of the saints have those gifts and capacities. Every member is important and is having gifts uh, given to them, not for them, but for all the body. And I want to make sure it's very, very clear, with a title or without, that you have a gift for the church that we want to see you use. Because in your obedience to use and serve the church, you become more like him. The second thing I want to point out in here is not only that it's not connected to a title, I want to really clear up the air that the gifts here are not attached to a gender. 
Uh, I'm inclined to, to demonstrate this and articulate this very clearly because I, I know that from my own experience and maybe from what you've seen in the world, there's, there's, there's traditions and, and, uh, and church settings which either by articulating it or doctrinally or just for a simple and cultured um, practically, these spaces have demonstrated that there's little to no value for women beyond children and serving their husbands in the church. Okay? And the reason I want to articulate that is because the Bible is constantly drumming the beat, the opposite of that. The very opposite of that. When it says exhort one another, encourage one another, edify one another, it never says if you're a guy, do it with a guy. If a girl, do it with a girl. I can learn and grow from each of you. And when the Bible articulates that, you see in the first chapter of Exodus, it talks, the first chapter of Exodus, when everything's going crazy, all the heroes are women. And, and, and the first resurrection witnesses who saw Christ in the garden and the first ones to proclaim the risen Christ were women. Matter of fact, it's a good argument for why they would include that, that it must be true because at that time, a woman can't be a witness in a courtroom. Yet God said in his sovereignty, you're going to be the first one to see me risen. Lydia was a notable businesswoman that in Philippians, Paul brought to Christ and who supported and financed much of his ministry and the ministry of the church. Phoebe, in this very letter, in Romans chapter 16, 1 through 2, Paul commends our sister Phoebe to you as someone who is carrying the letter of Romans to the Roman church. And in that setting, likely is the one to read it first to the church because the messenger delivers the message. And he says about her, you should welcome her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and assist her in whatever matter she may require help. For indeed, she has been also a benefactor of many and of me also. Another successful woman in the church who is giving to the church in every capacity she can. Priscilla and Aquila in Acts is described as a couple, a power couple of theology, I suppose, because they were instructing everybody. And they go into a space where they hear this guy, Apollos, who is a lot like me in my 20s. He's ignorance on fire. He knows very little, but he's excited about it. And so he's preaching like crazy. And they come in, and it says, they take Apollos aside, and it doesn't say Aquila does it. It says, it says Priscilla and Aquila take him aside, and they instruct him and explain the ways of God to Apollos more accurately. So much so that Apollo goes on to preach and teach, even to the point that he has so many converts that one of the, one of the problems in Corinthians that Paul writes about is that some of them were saying, hey, I'm with Apollos, and I'm with Paul. These are the guys that saved me, and they got like teams. And he's like, no, no, God's working through all of us. That's Apollos, and Priscilla and Aquila invested in him. See, in our church, we even try to set aside and have opportunities we desire for this, and we even have right now ways in which women are serving our church, formal and informal. Right now, I didn't ask you ahead of time, it's okay, but Liz and Ozelia, you guys are serving in capacities of graphics and, uh, and, 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 instruct, and, and social media stuff that you guys are helping behind the scenes in powerful ways to help us to communicate things on slides, communicate through emails, things that we're doing. And we recognize that those are gifts that they have and hopefully enjoy doing. Um, Alyssa Keys is our child care coordinator, and she's been serving in a capacity since the very beginning to help us organize and direct in that way. 
Jerusha and my wife. I know that also uh, Aaron's wife has been serving. Um, Jessica has been serving in childcare. Uh, Heather, my wife, and Jerusha have been doing hospitality and scheduling. All kinds of ways that we're trying to use those gifts and abilities that women in our church have as well to serve the body. And in the coming future, we want to continue to open up opportunities for that. Uh, we're in development of planning uh, something of leadership development that we'd like to, to explore. Um, a church we came from had something called Aspire. There's other church plants that have come out from uh, IDC that have done similar programs. But we want to help fulfill the P, our peace plan, the P of planting churches and the E of equipping leaders. We want to do so through a leadership development program that, that has people who desire to be elders deacons, missionaries, church planters, and church leaders uh, to come together and have that open to men and women. We see in the few, we'll talk about an Acts in the beginning that deacons and deaconesses, those have specific titles, would also serve the church, men and women. And right now, even as we open this up, uh, we have sermon feedback this week uh, on, on, a, on a form, but one formal way we want to invite folks into is to do a sermon review during the week, both men and women within the church, to get a preview of what we're doing uh, come Sunday and to hear from you as we prepare and study God's Word. If you have a gift and feel you can't exercise it, come to me or Aaron, anybody that you feel is a leader here. Your gift is intended to bless the entire church. And we want to find a way for you to use your gift for the good of this body. Finally, and almost in summation, Paul now turns, as he's mentioning all these gifts and all these ways in which the body is served, he turns now to God's holy family, that we live as God's holy family by conquering evil with good. Verses 9 through 21. Let love be without hypocrisy. Detest evil. Cling to what is good. Love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. Take the lead in honoring one another. Do not lack diligence and zeal. Be fervent in the spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in affliction. Be persistent in prayer. Share with the saints in their needs. Pursue hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud. Instead, associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own estimation. First, looking at the first 9 through 18, um, verses 9 through 18, it's a big chunk. There's a lot going on. In a similar way, last week we preached or looked at the Beatitudes, and you, you see over throughout history, people have just done a sermon on each one of those, and you could do similar things here. But I don't want to break those down. I'd rather take the time to draw attention to the fact that Paul, in a similar way to Jesus, is demonstrating the radical values and life of a person who lives in view of the mercies of God. They let love be without hypocrisy. Jesus told his disciples, the way you'll know that they will know you're my disciple is the way you love one another. How do we love one another? We detest evil. We cling on to what is good. And that sets the tone for the rest of this section. Let love be without hypocrisy. If Christ loves you and you say you love him and you love his body, you would love the church and let that love be without hypocrisy. And he says it's not without hypocrisy to double down, love one another deeply as brothers and sisters, taking the lead in honoring one another. 
that we don't just sit back and wait till someone honors us, but rather like someone who's a brother and sister, we see the need and we serve. It's notable to say brother or sister because how often do we struggle, and let's be honest with our own selves, that if a family member were to come up to us and to ask us and had a very visible need that they needed to fulfill, often many of us, unless you have a terrible relationship with your brother or sister, uh, are going to jump to help fill that need as best you can. And within the body of Christ, Paul is saying that should be the same way we react without hesitation. That like a brother or a sister who needs help, that like the family of God would come together and say, let me meet your need. And it doesn't matter if you can give back to me. It doesn't matter if you can reciprocate. Be the first to show that love for one another. He says, do not lack diligence and zeal that enthusiasm. I really find it fascinating that he says don't lack diligence and zeal. Sometimes we think about a fanatic or someone who's enthusiastic about something. It's just a natural thing. If you're someone like me, you understand that I have to be diligent to be enthusiastic. I'm sorry. That's, that's no? Nobody else in here? Uh, in fact, what I mean by that is that there's a way in which we can grow weary sometimes in our zeal. And our enthusiasm for what Paul says here of serving the Lord, to be fervent in the Spirit. It's a way in which Paul is saying to be diligent about those things. is don't grow weary in well-doing, but pursue the kingdom intentionally. Pursue what is good and right, and don't lack in diligence there. It says rejoice in hope and be patient in affliction. Be persistent in prayer. All of those things really fall under a similar category where we demonstrate our faith and dependence on God in every fashion of trial. Rejoicing in hope, being patient in that affliction, being persistent in the way we depend on God in prayer. Share with the saints in their needs. Pursue hospitality. Giving of yourself to others again. Another way in which Paul is demonstrating that and the way in which we lay down our life to serve the saints and also pursue hospitality outside of the kingdom to those who we know who aren't, who aren't followers of Christ. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse, seeking good for all people, not wrestling against flesh and blood, but seeing that we wrestle against principalities and darkness around them and that we, we, we don't persecute people who, who, who persecute us, but rather we bless them. Rejoicing with those who rejoice, weeping with those with we, who weep. We actually enter into the sorrow of people. We share in their joy and we share in their sorrows in this world of which there are many. And we celebrate together and we grieve together. We live in harmony with one another, in tune with the family. Do not be proud and said, associate with the humble. Paul started from the beginning to not think too highly of yourself when he talks about the gifts. And so here he also reminds us, don't be proud, don't think of yourself above others. Rather like in Philippians when we see Christ, we're encouraged to have his mind. Where Christ laid down his life for us, we should lay down our life for others. If we're living in view of that mercy, then we also live with that kind of a humility towards others. Do not be wise in your own estimation. This is very like, uh, similar to submitting yourself to the wisdom of the Spirit in others, recognizing that even as God's Spirit is in you, you also acknowledge the fact that you have blind spots and have a tendency to argue your own side, right? The flesh is strong. And what Paul's encouraging is don't be wise in your own estimation, but also recognize that God's Spirit will affirm through the body. That as he speaks to one, he speaks to others, and we can seek the wisdom that he gives others in the family of God. 
I, I remember hearing once from someone on a conversation uh, where we were discussing someone who felt called to the ministry. And when they were being called to the ministry, I, I mentioned some reservations about it. Someone who was a, a church back when I was uh, up in Virginia. And, and the person actually responded to me, said, if someone feels called to the ministry, who are we to say no? We're the body of Christ. And God's spirit is in me that's in him that's in you. And if we are one in that spirit, then his spirit speaks to all of us. And so as you come to me and talk about leadership, sometimes we're going to either say wait, or we're going to give you some wisdom. But what Paul's saying is don't be wise in your own estimation. And trust that the spirit is leading all of us. And he moves here from this admonition to show love and to pursue harmony that's radical to the world. And he takes that and transitions in verse 17 to where he starts to talk about how we now respond when specific evil is done against us. Verse 17 says, Do not repay evil for evil. Give careful thought to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath. Because it is written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in so doing, you will be heaping fiery coals on his head. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. Paul turns here to vengeance and talking about thus not to repay evil for evil. And notice what he says here. In the Greek, it also says the same thing. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Yeah, but they cut me off in traffic. Do not repay evil for evil. Do you know what they called my, my sister? Do not repay evil for evil. Yeah, but they took the last donut. Do not repay evil for evil. I know, I'll be angry. No. The radical life in the family of God is that when one does evil to us, we give careful thought to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. And this is difficult. That's why we're encouraged to be diligent. That's why Paul urges us to live as living sacrifices. And our sense of justice is heightened for ourselves and those we greatly care for. I said I'd point to this as an example. If you're familiar with Stranger Things, first death in season four, uh, sorry, it's a spoiler. It's a girl that dies early in the season, and her boyfriend finds out who she thinks killed her, and he goes out like a vigilante. Don't spoil it. I don't know what happens yet. I'm still watching it. But he goes on a rampage, starts beating up kids to try to find this person that he thinks killed his girlfriend. And I understand because he has such a great close relationship with her, and if someone harmed my kids, I'd have a hard time not returning the favor. But what we have to trust God with often is what Paul's encouraging here, that we need to trust him with ultimate vengeance. We can't control others. We can't change them. We can't change whether they like us, whether they love us, and we won't be in perfect relationship with all people at all times. I don't know if that's a revelation for you or not, but there are some people that are going to be hard to get along with in your life. And that's why Paul says very reasonably, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. 
He says, as far as it depends on you. And Paul turns and says, take the vengeance that you desire and trust it to the Lord. Seek justice in this world. Yes, I'm not asking for that. I'm not saying someone comes and kills your family. You're like, well, I'm not calling the police. That's different. Okay. The, the, the government carries a sword. All right. And justice is served. But we don't seek personal vengeance. And we, no matter what level in which it rises to. Paul says, instead, let vengeance be trusted to God ultimately because he is perfectly just. And instead of that, he says, give mercy and grace to those you feel don't deserve it. He does the very opposite. Read that again with me. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in so doing, you will heap fiery coals on his head. Now that sounds like it's another, like a sideways saying of hurting the person anyway, doesn't it? It sounds like, listen, trust me, God's saying, they'll hate it even worse if you're nice. And in some respects, it's right. Is it true? I mean, in some respects, it's right. People want to be justified when they're treating you evil. And if you're kind in return, it challenges that. And so in some ways, it is hurtful to them personally because they don't like that. They see This person doesn't really deserve this. But I think more than that, what God is demonstrating is that in heaping burning coals on them, it's a restorative and refining work that's being done on that person. That they see the mercy of God in you as evidence that God has changed something in you. And like Peter says, ask and get an answer for the hope that's in you. And I can't think of a normal perfect example of that than someone by the name of Rosaria Butterfield. She's actually a Presbyterian pastor's wife in Durham. And when, if you ever read the book, uh, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, she discusses the story of a pastor that lived in her apartment building. And this pastor and his wife was consistently kind to her. And at that time, she was a very, very vocal and opinionated professor, lesbian professor, at her college that she was working at. And she, did not, she was not about anything that they were about as pastors as in the church. And she recounts the story that they would invite her to her, their apartment for dinner and they would be consistently loving and kind. That's why she says the gospel comes with a house key. That they invited and opened up their door to her in such a way, despite the fact that she made it very clear she didn't like what they, they were about. But she would come. For some reason, she would come. She'd eat with them and they were kind. She, she, was, she was adamant about protecting the environment. When, she, when they, they, she showed up, they opened the windows and turned off the air conditioner. Anything that they might do to remove barriers between them and her, because ultimately God's going to be one that changes anybody. And we don't have to change them before we bring them to the cross. Can I, put, can I stress that? Don't try to clean somebody up before you present them to Jesus. Don't do that. That is a, that is a pain point of so many types of discipleship or outreach, is to think you need to get something right for them before you bring them to the cross. It's the refining fire of God that changes somebody. And as we show the mercy of Christ, the person who hates us, the same way Rosara Butterfield recounts, she says their kindness burned away her anger. And she began to see Christ more beautifully. Believers, the encouragement from Paul here is that as we live in view of the mercies of God, we conquer evil with good. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. Setting the book in on what he started, right? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Do not 
be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. That's the radical life of God's holy family in this world, a city on a hill. A life that's lived in view of God's mercy will be a life that looks so strange before the world, but that God says we are on a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. And when we live in view of his mercies, it changes people. Let's be that city on a hill. Let's serve one another. As God's holy family, let's live in view of his mercies, laying down our life as sacrifice to him, serving the body and conquering evil with good. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy that you've poured out on your family. And God, thank you that you've invited us to be a part of that holy family. Lord, transform us and change us from the inside, God, that we would be more obedient to you day by day, that the measure of grace you've poured out on us, we would then give to the body of Christ, that we'd recognize and see how you have gifted us, and let's live in that way that we bless the church and the world. Lord, through your people, you said you bless the world. Let's be that blessing. Pray, God, that we live so radically in our day by day, That whether we stay here, we go, we serve somewhere overseas, whatever we do, even in the ordinary everyday, that it would be a life that puts on display the hope of the gospel to everyone we meet. Father, thank you so much for your kindness and the way you change us. And we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.